0: Hi, this is Robert Furrow and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. The Bible says that you are more blessed than Jesus' mother Mary, Jesus said this, if you hear His words and do them. What a promise that we're blessed if we hear his words and do them, making sure that we can rightly divide the word of God, and we will have everything that we need. The word of God will not return to God void. It will accomplish the things that's going to accomplish and it accomplishes them in our lives. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that God's word works within us. So it's good for us to know his word, study it, believe it and look at it. The first question that we have today comes from a question that was asked last week. I was asked to articulate the position on once saved, always saved. And after giving it some thought and thinking about the certain scriptures, I kind of just backed out of that. Uh, The reason that I backed out of it is because I'm not used to defending the position of once saved, always saved. There's a few reasons for that. First of all, I never thought that this question was important. I thought that this, I think, and I still do to some degree, feel like this is a distraction. When I was a, in high school, I had a friend of mine who was a girl and she was living an ungodly lifestyle. And when I talked to her about it, because she confessed to be a Christian, she said, well, don't worry about that. Uh, once saved, always saved. Well, I, I gave my life to Christ when I was younger and I'm saved but she was living apart from Christ as much as you possibly could. And what I knew, even as a teenager in Christ, was that that wasn't right. There's no way that you can live how she was living and be a Christian. The Bible says in John chapter 1, If you say you love him, but you don't keep his commandments, then you're lying. So I have always rejected the one saved. Always, I should I should say most of my life I've rejected the one saved. Always saved, and then once I started looking into Calvinism and realized that Calvinism is so far out there that they believe that God unilaterally chose someone before the foundations of the world to be lost, and that person can't be saved. Unilaterally chose somebody to be saved that can't be lost. So when Reformed, or or charismatic, uh, or, Charisma, or, um, or uh, Calvinistic says, once saved, always saved, they mean something different than what I mean. What they mean is that person was saved by God, chosen by God for the foundations of the world. Well, we've shown here on this program, quite often, that what those passages mean, like Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, is those that have faith are the ones God's chosen before the foundations of the world. He made the decisions that those who who would believe, like Abraham did, they would be saved it's not unilaterally choosing someone before or after. So, to a Calvinist, to um, to, uh, someone who is Reformed, once saved, always saved. You were saved before you were even created. And you're always saved. Now, how can you think you're going to lose your salvation? So, that's completely a different definition than how we work with it today. And so, what I've always believed is a couple of things. Number one, that the argument doesn't matter. Because you've got once saved, always saved, and you've got people who believe you can leave your salvation. Nobody believes you can lose it, but you can leave your salvation. And here's a person who walked with Christ for a while, and then they decided, I hate God, I don't want to have anything to do with Him, I don't want to follow Him anymore, and he leaves Christianity. And he is now living in the world, ungodly, has a hatred for God, for the things of God, despises the things of God, I used the example of a Satan worshiper in the past. No one is going to say that guy saved. The once saved, always saved people are going to go, he had a false salvation. I'm talking about a Calvinist. going to say he had a false salvation. He was never chosen from before the foundations of the world. It looked like he was saved, but his true colors were eventually revealed. The person who believes that you can get saved and then never lose your salvation are going to go, that guy was never saved. Because if he was ever saved, he wouldn't have gone out from us. And the person who believes that you can leave your salvation is going to say he was genuinely saved. He better be careful because uh, he, is, he is now an apostate and he's left Christ. And so the argument doesn't mean anything. You want to argue, unsaved, always saved, but you've got a guy who's walking away from Christ, who has walked away from Christ, who's apostatized, and nobody says he's saved. So that's why I've never got into defending the once-saved-always-saved or even the you-could-lose-your-salvation. So I took some time to look up some verses that I want to show you on this issue. And here's what I say about the issue. I'm not settled on it. I, I don't know. I read passages, especially out of Galatians, where it talks about those that were in Christ who have now are in danger of of not following Christ, leaving Christ. And I know the arguments. The arguments are that they're, they're in danger of leaving true salvation but they're still saved even though they're trying to work for their salvation now. That's the argument that the one saved, always saved gives. Um, And I'm not sure that argument works. I just find myself wanting to be honest with the Scriptures and seeing some passages that are very strong towards you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is what I'm going to read you. And then seeing some other passages that challenge us as to whether or not somebody uh, might not be able to leave their salvation. Now, this is the way that I believed for years. I believed that when you were saved, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, it was very difficult for you to leave your salvation. But it was possible. And if you did, he was going to come after you. So it was very difficult to stay away. But it was possible to stay away. And that once you stayed away, Hebrews 6, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. You crossed a line where it's now possible to renew you to repentance. That's what I used to believe. Uh, today, I go, I don't know. I teach the word as it stands, and I see that the Bible teaches a perseverance, but I also see that the Bible tells us we must endure to the end to be saved. Let me show you a few verses and I'll show you what I mean. So here we have 1st Timothy, 2nd uh, Timothy 1 7. Uh, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Oh, wait a minute. I'm in the, ro- I'm in the r- my wrong thing here. Let me get over here. All right, here we go. So um, so here we go. It says uh, in John 5 24, most assuredly I say to you, Jesus speaking, he who hears my words believes in him Who sent me? And has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. But he possesses, but he has passed from death unto life. So if you hear his words and believe in him, then you've passed from death to life and you shall not come into judgment. It seems like that's a pretty permanent position, right? We see the same thing in Ephesians 1 13 and 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So, again, it doesn't say unilaterally before the beginning of the world, but since you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what does that sealing mean? It goes on to say, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So, if I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, now I have, this, I have been guaranteed of the inheritance, which means I'm going to make it until the redemptions of the purchased possession to the praises of His glory. Let me give you another one. This is John 10, 28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. J- Jesus speaking. John 10:28. And the argument here is a philosophical argument more than a biblical argument. What does it mean, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish? Once you have eternal life, can he ever take it away from you? And if he did, you never had it. So, if he, if, he gave, if if John 3.16 is true, for God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life, then if you have everlasting life, and then you don't have it, you never had it, so that verse could never be true. same. All right? Now, th- that's just a sampling of the kind of passages that you find. And there are a lot more of them. And um, this question was asked, by the way, by Psych Man, who I see here today. Um, so, if I were going to make a case for Once Saved, Always Saved, I would use these verses and others as well. But there are verses like this. This is 2 Peter 2, 20 and 22. And these are what give me pause and tell me that even though I lean towards Once Saved, Always Saved, I'm unsettled on the position. And I think that's okay because we're not talking about, we're not talking about a salvation issue here. If you believe someone can rarely but possibly lose their, or leave their salvation, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. If you believe that someone can ever lose their salvation, doesn't mean you're not a Christian. So it's okay to be unsettled, uncertain ones. But look at what this says. For if after having escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So they escape the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. Lord, they surrender their lives to Him. Savior, He saved them. They are again entangled and overcome. The latter is worse than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than knowing it, now they knew the way of righteousness and don't know it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to men. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and the sow um, having been washed to her wallow in the mire. Now the argument goes that this person wasn't really saved, that they had the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, that they had, um, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness. They knew the way of righteousness, but they didn't know it, like really know it. Um, However, I find those arguments weak. And when you start going back to the Greek and asking, what does it mean to know the way of righteousness? You start to go, well, it means to know. So, So, I find that when they're dealing with the passages, that deal with enduring to the end, then they have one standard. When they deal with the other passages, they have another standard. And this is why I come to the place where I am and I say I'm unsettled on on the topic. I don't know. I want to be honest. I want to be honest about what the Word of God says. And the Bible says that if you could be saved by the law then Christ died in vain and in Galatians that if you are now trusting in the law you've fallen from Christ or you've left Christ. Those verses when I study them I just don't want to go, well, you know, what this really means and then give it something. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm not quite sure. Here's what I know. And everyone agrees with this. You have to endure to the end. Nobody says, that we're not going to sin. We all know we sin. If anybody says they don't sin, they're a liar. We all know we're going to sin. We have to endure to the end. We know that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. If you're not keeping his commandments, then do you have confidence you ever had a commitment with him? And if you are following him and endure to the end, then you're saved and you always had salvation. If you walked away, did you ever have that salvation? See, that's the the question that we have that's there. You've got to know certain things. And to me, the especially the reformed position how do I know I was chosen unilaterally for the foundations of the world and since there's people who like Billy Graham's assistant or John MacArthur's assistant who knew Christ and were do, involved in ministry and on all per, by all appearances loved him but then they walked away and died not knowing him then I will not want to give assurance to someone when I don't know whether they really have assurance. And so that's why last week, um, Psych Man, when you said, can you give me the case for um, once saved, always saved, um, I I struggle with that case, and that's why it's hard for me to give the case. I can give you the passages that they say, they use, but I also know what the other passages are and how they go against them. And so, On, on some topics, you just have to lean, you know, you just got to go, I lean that way. And is it possible that it's very, very difficult to lose your, leave your salvation, but you can do it? And I would say, yes, I think that is, that is a possibility. Um, do I know it for sure? No. What about someone who's genuinely saved today? Do I believe that they are genuinely saved? That's the way I lean. But if you ever leave, then you may reveal you were never there. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So I still think better not to have this conversation. Better not have the once saved, always saved conversation. Just say, Walk with Jesus, stay close to Him, love Him, serve Him, and follow Him. That's what we want to do. All right. So um, we have a question from Paul McGuire. And thank you, uh, Psych Man, for asking that question last week, by the way. Paul says, is there a more possibility that annihilationism can be true? When Jesus says, repent or perish, what exactly does Jesus mean to perish? Um, yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, so here's, I think that a lot of people have hell wrong. I, um, I've... I've Read a handful of books on hell. I've read Bart Ehrman's Heaven and Hell, and I find that people never bring up what you're bringing up here and other passages as well. The Bible says, Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and few and many there are that find it. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there are that find it. So, destruction. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So, The Bible talks about hell as destruction and perishing, and it uses that kind of lingo. And then the Bible talks about the fire never going out and the the worm never dying and the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. And to some are given eternal life and to some are given eternal contempt. So, one of them has to be an analogy. The fire or the worm or the perishing or the destroying. Or both of them. Jesus also, you told a parable where the person in hell, some received few stripes and some received many, and he talked about it mean more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum and Corazon, or Corazin, two cities where he did his ministry at. So when I look and when I put all of those together, I go, your description of hell, that it is a place where whoever goes there, is going to have their skin flayed off of them forever and ever is going to be burned with blisters and boils on their skin forever and ever. I, 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 I think that you're looking back at the Greek god Hades. I think you're looking back at the Dark Ages Dante. And you're not looking at what the Bible has to say about hell. And, and this is the long, you know, I've, I've long promised that I want to do a teaching on hell. And we're getting closer and closer. The that which has made me always back away from annihilationism is that the Jehovah Witnesses believe in annihilationism, and generally I don't want to believe what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. Um, however, since then, I found that there are some solid, good teachers that believe in annihilationism. I'm not saying that I do, but um, Dr. Michael Brown believes in annihilationism. There are a few other, a few others who do. Um, And when you start talking like this, then you find that people say, well, you're making it easy for people to to reject Christ. No, when you say that the grandmother who died is now going to be in hell and be tortured forever in an unthinkable, uh, you can't handle it. And she's going to be tortured just like Hitler because evil is evil. And we don't know how evil the heart is. And everyone has the same wicked, evil heart. That's unbiblical to me, first of all, and number two, you are you are um, slandering God, because everyone knows that a, um, some grandmother who died doesn't deserve the same thing Hitler got, and so there is a torment about hell. There is also those who are in hell not wanting heaven, not not loving God, not wanting to be around him. They never wanted to be around him. And I think the possibility, and that's the way you put your question here, Paul, is there a remote possibility that annihilationism could be true? I think there is a possibility that annihilationism could be true because of the destruction and perishing passages. Um, like the once saved, always saved. I'm not completely settled on it. I do know when I read books like Francis Chan's book on hell that I listen to most of it and think he doesn't have it right. The, even the way he, he uses scriptures, it's almost just like he wants to make it as bad as possible. And a lot of times when I hear people talking about hell, um, they don't ever they don't ever mention that Jesus said it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for some than others, and some are going to be beaten with few stripes, and um, that the word destruction and perish is used. So, these things are never brought up, and since they're never brought up, it makes me think, why you're not giving a complete, thorough look at hell. And if there's one reason today why people say, I can't follow God, it's because he sends people to hell. So, if we return and, and demonstrate at least that God's being fair when someone is in hell, they're on their way to hell now, he's ascending, he me on a rescue mission, but if someone ends up in hell, that God is fair in his judgment. Then I think uh, that, that that will go a long ways. And um, that is really my heart and desire. Alright? So... Yeah, I do think that there is a possibility and I will, in my study on hell, before we're out of the book of Revelation, um, I want to give a list of those who do believe in annihilationism because it's not the big giant list of apostates that people think it is. All right. so thank you very much uh, for your question. I do appreciate that. We have a question here from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, if someone is struggling with the same sin over and over again, Are they saved who practice sin? Um, Over again, are they saved, he who practices sin? Also, is hell literal fire? Or can you feel pain without a physical body? Okay, so a couple of things, Jari. First of all, um, remember they're resurrected, okay? So, at the end of the millennium, there's a second death. And everyone is resurrected and stands before the Great White Judgment Throne and the books are opened. So they do have a literal body. We think about them now in a place of torment. And if Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus was a real place, then there's people who are in torment. Were the flames of fire literal or not? We don't know. Torment is different than torture. Okay. So if there's a person who was there in torment, because they don't have a body now and they're, they're whole withholding judgment. They will have a body one day. So now your first question is if someone's struggling with the same sin over and over again, are they the one who practices the sin? It depends, okay? So, we know that it says in, in Galatians that the lusts of the flesh are evident, which are these, and then it gives a list. In fact, let me just see if I can go ahead and take a moment to find these. I think it might be beneficial to look over this list because it might be really easy for us to go. Well, I don't ever walk in the lust of the flesh, but when you read this list, it's like, huh. Well, I'm not so sure you don't. What is it? Galatians five. Let me go there. Galatians five. I think here we have the lust of the flesh. Oops, we have the lust of the flesh and the the pride of life that are mentioned. Let me see here. Love fulfills the law, Mm, walking in the spirit, I think we're getting there, um, no, is it? It's not six, is it? It's not four, I don't think. I just taught Galatians just not that long ago, you'd think I'd remember exactly where this passage is. Um, let's see. All right, let me just quote it to you because I don't want to take any more time to try to find this. Okay, so it says, the lusts of the flesh are evident, which are these. And the first four that it lists are sexual sins. And then it talks about heresies and covetousness and um, lying. And it just gives this list of sins that everybody would do. And again, I I wish I could really find this because it becomes very evident once you look at it that no one's got a foot to stand on to say, I don't struggle with these things anymore at all. But... um, Um. Yeah. So it's it's not four, is it? Let's let me take a really quick look on, chat, on verse four because I want I I really want to take a look at it. I don't think it is. It must be five. How come I can't find it in here? Let me go to five again. Some of you guys are screaming right now at the uh, at the radio, uh, trying to get me to to uh, get to the right spot here. Um if I walk in the Spirit, I won't fill the lust of the flesh. Aha! I found it. Good. Sometimes perseverance works. Alright, so let me just go ahead and get you up here on the screen, Jari. So, um, now, the, now, here we go. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and lewdness. Those are all sexual sins, okay? I'm not going to talk about the differences between them now. Idolatry, that's putting something above God. Sorcery, which is working with the enemy, the devil, doing demonic things. Hatred, you ever hate anybody? J- contentions, you ever been contentious, just want to pick a fight? Jealousies, Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition. Dissensions, heresies, envies, murders drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven." Now, what about the person that is struggling with being contentious? And they just can't seem to get out of it. And they get, they get contentious, they pick a fight with their kids, they pick a fight with their spouse, they pick a fight with their boss, which might not be very smart. And then they go, Lord, I'm sorry I'm that way. I am so I don't want to be contentious. Please forgive me, help me, I need help. And then about three days later again, they're picking a fight with somebody, they're contentious, they're picking a fight with somebody. And then they realize it and go, oh Lord, I'm sorry, I don't want to be this way. And then five days later, they're picking a fight with somebody again. That's not practicing sin. That's a person who's struggling with jealousy, with um, outbursts of wrath, with selfish ambition, that that's all on the list. The person who practices selfish ambition is the person who's like, you know, I'm out to I'm out to to better myself. I'm out to just to get as, as as well known as I could possibly. I want the best for me as I could possibly get. I'm doing this out of selfish ambition. He lives that way. He doesn't fall under conviction. If he does fall under conviction, he doesn't change. And those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to be living that way if indeed you're a real Christian. And so, if you have a sin um, like um, like uh, reveries, which is just picking fights, and it's just something that you do, or or heresies, right, or envy and you don't want to repent from it, you're like, you know what? I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay. I understand that's a sin, but I'm okay. I got it. I'm, I love Jesus. And that's fine. Well, you don't really have a problem because you're practicing sin. So, for example, when a, uh, a gal came to me and told me that there was a gal that went to our church. She divorced her husband. She had a boyfriend. She was living with him. And um, we had told her she can't come back to the church. She saw me at Chipotle. She came up to the table to sit down and talk to me. When she sits down and talked to me, first thing she says is, I want you to know I'm spiritual. And I said, okay. And she said, the reason I can live with my boyfriend is because it's love and it's never wrong to walk in love. Now, you're talking very progressive Christianity right now. You're talking very new age movement. You're talking, um, that's, this, is, uh, this is non-believer talking, right? Um, I'm living with my boyfriend, but that's real love and love can't be wrong. And when I say to her, you are practicing sin and those who practice sin cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And and we come back to the one saved, always saved question to some degree here too at this one. But, I mean, either the scriptures are true or they aren't. But that's the person who's practicing sin. It's the person who absolutely will not repent from what they're doing. They don't want to repent. But the person who hears from God, who repents and then falls back, and then repents, and falls back into it. The Samson kind of character is still a saved individual. So let's go to your question, Jari. If someone is struggling with the same sin over and over again, are they saved those who practice sin? Also, is it a literal fire, or can you feel pain without a physical body? And I like how you just kind of slip in two questions there, Jari. Um, So, uh, a literal fire... I'm, I'm going to lean towards not a literal fire. Well, you can't have a literal worm never dying in a literal fire. So, they got, the fire has to be not literal. The worm has to be not literal. Um, you've got also destruction and perish, as I said there. So, you've got contradicting literal words that you've got to somehow be able to deal with. All right? So, thank you uh, very much, Jari. I appreciate that. We have a question from Steve. Steve, always good questions. Can you help me understand Matthew 16, 24 and Galatians 5, 24? Thanks, I'm excited to study this. All right, well, let's take a look at them. Uh, Matthew, and I'm glad you, by the way, we, we only keep it to two references that we can go to. Once we get to more than two, it becomes crazy. But I'm glad you added the references in uh, here. And um, where are you at? You're on YouTube. Uh, sometimes if you could cut and paste them in as well, it would save me the time of being able to look it up, all right? If you're on YouTube, you can't. You don't have enough, and he's on YouTube. You don't have enough space to be able to do it. So, if you're on Facebook, you can cut and paste and we can just read it off the screen. But it only takes me a couple minutes to find them here. Probably longer than it should. So, this is um, Matthew sixteen twenty all right? Put it up here. Um, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me forever desires, to save his life will lose it, but he will lose his life for my he so save it. So, let's just deal with this first, okay? So, he is giving a broad invitation for all of us to be disciples. And he says, if anyone wants to be my de- desires to come after me, you can, but you've got to deny yourself and you've got to pick up your cross and follow him, which means you're dying for yourself and living for him. Paul put it this way in Galatians. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live to Christ in, this, in my flesh, in this, to the Son of God. Um, he goes on to say, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So we know he's talking about giving up your life by carrying the cross. Because that's the context. Okay. So there's that one. Then we're going to go to Galatians five twenty and see what that one says. And I'm interested even at this point if Galatians 5.24 is um, is compatible to this or seems to be contradictory. So let me take a look at this, Steve. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, compl- um, complimentary. All right. And those who... Our Christ crucify the flesh with the passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envy, envying one another. Okay? So, yeah, we, we are his disciples when we become saved. We're followers of Christ. We are we are not apostles, but we are disciples, like the twelve disciples were, and we are to we're crucified with him. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Um, If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and come after me. So there are ways now that we do not live because we've come to Christ. And um, I I quoted another one that fits right in there, right? The one out of Galatians where he talks about it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me because I've been crucified uh, with Christ. So, uh, yeah, we... um, I can give you another one, Steve, and that's um, Romans 12, um, that says, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, let me just get there real quick and I'll, I'll quote it to you. Um, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So, we are living sacrifices. He says, I beg you, brethren, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. You are no longer living for your flesh, for the lust of the flesh, for the passions of the flesh, but you're now living for Christ, the life that you live, you live for him. So um, great question, Steve. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, this is the way that we are supposed to live. So, a psych man has a question about Revelation chapter twelve. So, and, and we're, we've covered this uh, recently. Um, Revelation twelve four is yet future, okay? if Revelation twelve four is yet future. Um, which I'm not sure that Revelation twelve four is. But well, let's let's look at your rest of the question. For where we get the demons currently annoying us, doesn't the FBI caught some spies into churches? Sounds like front page news. Thanks, Reverend. Dude, kidding. All right. So, yeah, um, Psych Man. I do, I've do. i heard something about the FBI um, going into churches, which is just interesting to me. I could also tell you some other stuff um, that I'm finding out about um just some just pastors, Bible teaching pastors, which is really I we're living in the last days and we are truly under attack. Um, but psych like, man, let me go ahead and go to Revelation 12 and let's talk about this passage a little bit. Because it's really easy to get this one confused because it's a snapshot of um I'm gonna go to 14. I was, I was looking at it going, what? Uh, 12. There we go. All right. Um, Now, because it's a snapshot of history, it's not just um, a one-moment thing. It's talking about this, it's showing us this thing that's been going on in the scenes a woman with a dragon and a woman giving birth and the dragon desiring to devour the child. And we know that this conflict between Christ, the promised one, and the devil has gone on since Genesis 3.15 where it says, "Um, one of your descendants will crush his head but he will bruise your heel, which was fulfilled at the cross. So, this is a parenthetical section of the book of Revelation that's important to understand. There's a, a basic general walk through the book. You're going chronologically. And then every so often you get pictures of what's going on either in the tribulation period or behind the scenes. This is the behind the scene one. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun and the moon under her feet, on her head a garland of twelve stars, then being with child she cried out in labor and, and birth pains. Now, some believe that this was Virgo and Leo on September 23rd of 2017 and that Jesus was going to return because to uh, September 23rd is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and that Jesus was going to return. Th- There's a sign in the heavens where there were 12 stars in Leo that were the garland on her head and the sun was clothed on her and the moon was under her feet and the, the kingly planet Jupiter was in her for 9 months and came out on the 23rd. Here's the problem with that. None of that was exact. There are more than 12 stars in Leo the Sun was off to her side and not really clothing her. The Moon was off to the side of her feet, not under her feet. Jupiter wandered in and out of her and didn't come out on exactly the 23rd. So, a lot of times people can give you details like something is true and then you find out later on, they're kinda fudging the details to make them look better. And to me, that's just not honest. It shouldn't be involved in Bible study at all, whatsoever. The woman who is about to give uh, child uh, birth is Israel. The child that she's going to give is Christ. I realize that Catholics, um, Greek Orthodox, other religions like that often have pictures or icons of Mary with 12 stars and and the sun and the moon and, and all of that and the child. Um, but this is not Mary because this, this woman is going to be hid in the wilderness for three and a half years. Which is obviously Israel. And another sign appeared in the heavens, a fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars from heaven, such as you're talking about, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to the child to devour the child. So, standing before the child was born to devour the child was in the past. The third, falling from heavens was way in the past, before the foundations of the world, I believe. Although some believe Satan fell after the foundation, after our world was created. It says she bore a male child who was to rule the nation with a rod of iron, that's Christ, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. So this is all happening very quickly. She's pregnant. This, this woman is, this child, the, the dragon stands before the woman. We know the dragon is Satan himself. It says, then the woman fled into the wilderness where... She has a place prepared for her that they should uh, feed her for 1,260 days, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and they fought. Um, but they did not prevail, nor was there found a place in heaven for them any longer. That's yet in the future where he is thrown out of heaven and hasn't got access. Right now he has access, to the accuser of the brethren day and night. It's going to go on to say in this passage. And in Job, we know that Satan could go to God and, and God could say, Where have you been? I've been down on the earth, going back and forth on the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? So this is all a backdrop of the spiritual battle that's going, behind, going on behind the scenes. So, when we take a look at it, we think, um, yeah, we think, you know, wow, this just looks like it was a one-time moment. But when you look at it, it's the battle of, it's the promise, the uh, the promises, the, the work of the ministry, the life, the death, of the return of Jesus, all seen in chapter 12. The, the spiritual battle between Satan Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and Jesus as well all right so um, yeah 124 is in the past not in the future but 127 is in the future not in the past all right thanks uh, psych man I appreciate that So we have a question here from John Doe um, different kind of doe Dow is that it John Dow maybe um, question one of the commandments says to honor your father and mother? Am I wrong if I respect or honor my father because of his past and current behaviors or actions? Or if I don't respect or honor my father? Well, I would want a couple of questions here from you, um, John. Um, Obviously, there can be a parent who a child is not supposed to respect. If the parent is just a monster and hurts them and respecting them causes all kinds of problems for them. I'm going to assume you're an adult, John, and that you're having trouble with your, with respecting and honoring him because of who and the kind of things your dad has done. Um, You can still honor him for being your father, but not respect him for his current behaviors and actions. Okay? So there is a way in which you want to give him honor for being your father. But also, you don't expect that you would have to um, do what he says, or that you have to uh, agree or approve of the things that he's doing and believing, okay? All right, so I I do appreciate that. So we have a follow-up question from John. John says, "Um, or am I, in a weird way, hoping Help um, honoring him by not being like him and bettering myself. Um, All right, since we're looking at things through the lens of Scripture, I'm going to say that's not what the Bible means by honor. So when when the Bible says honoring him, it means you honor him. Now, the Bible also says give honor where honor is due. Maybe your father hasn't done anything to be honored for. I would look for areas to be able to honor him and not accept current behavior that is ungodly or not honorable. That's what I would do. Um, This question here sounds a little bit new agey to me. Are this, yeah, the follow up a little new agey, John, um, honoring him by not being like him and bettering myself. Um, You have a relationship with your heavenly father and you want to live your life for him. And uh, if you've never given your life to Christ, the Bible says, as many as receive him, he He causes them to become children of God who believe in his name. This means you invite him in and you receive him and you believe in him, D- despite the fact that people like Votie Bakum say that receiving Christ as your savior is unbiblical. I just heard him say this. It's unbiblical to say, receive Jesus as your savior. I'm like, where? When she, You know, I, I like Bakum. Uh I don't agree with his reformed position. But for him to say that receiving Christ is unbiblical, you know, I I think it probably comes back to, and this is a sidetrack, a little trail here. It comes back to the fact of them believing that no one really has a decision. You can't make a decision to receive Christ. You're either chosen or not before the foundations of the world. All right? So, I don't know how I got off on that. Um, But, no, I don't think you're honoring him by bettering yourself. I think you better yourself because you're in Christ as a child and you receive Christ. There you go, that's why I got into it. If you've never given your life to Christ, then you live for Christ and that's the way that you really um, satisfied him, God, okay? And you give honor where honor's due. Where your father's honorable, honor him for that. Where he's not honorable, then no, you can't honor him because if he, there's not honorable. And if there's nothing to honor as a father, then if you can honestly say there's absolutely nothing to honor, then I say that you just take that to to God and say, Lord, I'm trying, help me to see something honorable if I'm doing something wrong. Okay? So we have another question from Rod. Rod, good to see you. Good to have you here. Always good questions, by the way. Um, Are our sins more than Christ's sacrifice? Then if not, backsliding after true salvation is forgiven. But if we are truly saved, would we backslide? Yeah, that's the question, right? Um Yeah, I think you can truly backslide if you're if you're if you're truly saved. Um I think of Peter in the book of Galatians when he's eating with the Gentiles and then the brethren from James come and he withdraws from the Gentiles and eats with the, with you know, making a separation and eats the brethren from who have made it their own table, their own kosher table, and Peter says, "I was stood him to his face because he was wrong." So y- y- yes, you can backslide as a as a as a Christian. Um, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Um, you would have to say that every backslidden Christian is not. Every backslidden person is not a Christian. Was never really saved. Um, we don't. We don't know when someone crosses a line where we would go. I don't think they're no longer saved. We just have to trust in God that God knows all of that. And um, I did backslide for a year when I was 18 years old. The pastor of the church that I went to had an affair with the secretary. One of my mentors had an affair. And I felt like if this is what Christianity is, I don't want it anymore. Now, I also had turned 18. I got saved when I was 14. I felt like the world had something to offer me. And I wanted to know what was out in the world. And so I had my own problems. But I walked away. But Jesus came and got me. And I mean, he came and got me. He took everything from me. He brought me to the place. And then I heard a song on the radio that brought me back to him. I know he came and got me. And I, I've always said of that year that I was away from the Lord, had I died during that year, I would have made it to heaven. Because I was his. And he came and got me. And um, I, I can, if, if you're interested in the story, I can tell you how he came and got me. But it is Pretty amazing, and I have it in my life. It's something that God's done for me. I'm his son, I know he loves me because he came and got me. All right, he, he did not let me stay in that position. All right, so thank you, Rod, I appreciate that. Did I get all of them? Are our, um, our, our sins more than Christ's sacrifice? No, the, the sacrifice of Christ is for every sin of anybody that ever committed it, and provisions for every person on earth then if not, backsliding after true salvation is, um, yeah, it's so, yeah, you can backslide and still be saved. Okay? So, um, all right, let's see what this question is from Kara. Kara, what does Ophanim mean in Revelation? Are angels with wheels? Not sure how to word that. But you do an amazing job of deciphering. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So, is there a place in Revelation where we see the Ophanim? I'm trying to think of it. We see the Ophanim in Daniel 7. We see them in Ezekiel in the description of the fiery throne, the chariot throne of God, which I love being a hot rod guy. I love that God's got a chariot that fire shoots out of. um, A a throne, a chariot throne that fire shoots out of. Um, So if anybody doesn't know what she's talking about, so Ezekiel sees a vision. And in this vision, there are angels, and each angel has a wheel. And when the angel goes right, the wheel goes right. When the angel goes left, the wheel goes left. And they're carrying the throne of God on the, the these um, angels, the shoulders of the angels. And the angels' faces are just facing in each direction. And they're different faces. And it goes this way. One's an ox and one's a, you know, a human. And when they go this way, they just go and they don't turn because they got a face going each direction. Like if I had a face on each side of my, I would never need to turn. I could just walk backwards. I could walk sideways. I could go this way because I got a face on every side the Ophanim go with them. And then it says the spirit of the of the angel or the cherubim or seraphim, whichever, I can't remember the description, is in the Ophanim. And when the Ophanim touches the ground, when the angel wants it to touch the ground, and it goes where the angel tells them to go. So you can look up the passage in Ezekiel. Um, and it hasn't been that long ago that I read it, but I'm not sure I'm getting all of it correct. Um, the question here is, are the Ophanim a kind of angel? They have eyes all around them. They're like wheels, but they have eyes all around them. But the spirit of the cherubim is in the Ophimin, Ophanim. So is the Ophanim another part of the body of the cherubim or, or seraphim? I think it's cherubim. That aren't with them, but part of it. And so this you've stumbled onto, Kara, a debate about. Um, As to whether or not Ophanim are angels. We know that we have Michael the Archangel, we know we've got chief princes, we know we've got princes, uh, we know we have cherubim, we have seraphim. Um, Do we have Ophanim? That's the question. And um, I'm sorry to give you an I don't know, but I don't know. What I am interested in though is if we have the Ophanim in Revelation. So if you have a passage where you find the Ophanim in Revelation, then, um, then get it to me. I've just read the, the entire book of Revelation. I can't remember the Ophanim there. And you think I would remember them. Doesn't mean they're not there, by the way. <laughs> so, alright. Um, so, um, Vance says, thanks. Let's uh, bring this in here. Matt Johnson says, thanks uh, for validating what my recovery Bible study here Um, At America Rehab Campus in Tucson was about once saved, always saved, 2 Peter 2, 20 and 22. Amen. Thanks, Vance. I appreciate it and good to see you. Hope things are going well. All right. So um, we have a question from Nielsen. Uh, Nielsen says, question. Uh, Blessings, Pastor. Thank you. You too. Uh, I got a question about Romans 8, verse 19. Can you elaborate and please read it in context? What does verse 19 mean, Romans 8, 19? First of all, I can say that Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible from beginning to end, all right? So, it's just incredibly awesome. I can hardly wait to get back to uh, the book of Romans. Uh, Last time I taught through it, I don't think I did it anywhere near uh, near the justice that it needs. All right, so we're going to Romans 8. I'm going to start in verse 18, Nielsen, uh, to read this in context. I'm going to go and put it up on the screen for you. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed from us. For, and here's your, your verse, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, for the creation was subject to futility, but not wi- not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans in labor pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for uh, we were saved in this hope. Hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for that which we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance." All right, absolutely fantastic text, Nielsen. Um, Yeah, so I think it means exactly what it says. I think that Adam and Eve were created and then God gave them dominion over the heavens and the earth. I mean, yeah, dominion over the earth um, to... uh, I, I can't remember all the details of the wording for them receiving dominion. Then they fell into sin. That dominion was handed over to Satan. There was a fall that was included in it so that creation is not what God created it to be. And there's something about creation that eagerly waits. I don't know that it's a a personality or a person or if it's just animals in nature that are eagerly waiting for the redemption that there's just something about them where they eagerly wait. It would seem to me that that's that's how I would take it and, and look at it um, I've heard people take this, what I would believe to be is too far. I want to just read the the verse 19 again. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits the revealing of the sons of God. So we are given the the right to become the children of God. And um, you kind of need to go into a Greek study here for the word sons of God, uh, just opposed against the Hebrew sons of God. All right. But um, great section of scripture, yes, creation was tossed into futility uh, because of the sin of mankind, who was supposed to watch over and care for it, but because they wanted to be like God, they threw away the title deed to the enemy, the God of this world. And in Revelation chapter, is it 11? The, 17, the seventh seal, the 17th seal, the seventh seal, where the kingdoms of our God have now become the kingdoms of our Christ. So he redeems it. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. There is a case for once saved always saved. Uh, Paul McGuire says, and there is a case for not once saved always saved. I I just don't like the once saved always saved terminology because I think I think it carries something with it. Like once saved always saved, you know, you were chosen by God for the foundations of the world. So how are you going to ever be lost? I I would just like to use different terminology. Um, Perseverance of the saints, maybe eternal security is a little bit better, although all of them have their foundations back in Calvinism, and we look at it different than Calvinists do. And um, Vance says exactly, we have to endure to the end, right? Which is going to reveal that we were saved, right? We made it to the end. Then we know that we were saved. Um, good stuff. Appreciate you guys. Alright, so we've got just a few more minutes here. We have a uh, Message, uh, a question, a follow-up from Kimberly. Good to see you, Kimberly. Kimberly says, Pastor, is it okay to not know? Paul said that we look through glasses darkly right now. There's reason God leaves some mysteries as mysteries. Um, Yes, Kimberly. um, Good question. It's okay. Yes. I have a lot of things I don't know. If you listen to me very often in my sermons, how often I say, I don't know. I think the know-it-all is in trouble because they don't know it all. The know-it-all doesn't know what they don't know. And there's a lot of things I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't think we're we're meant to know. Uh, The Bible even says, the revealed things belong to us, but the secret things belong to God. So there are things that God has revealed to us and there are things that He hasn't revealed to us. And so, yeah... It's okay to not know, and there's a lot of things I don't know. And like Pastor Chuck taught me, Pastor Chuck used to say, there's a shelf inside my head for further information. Meaning, look, I, I, need, I need to know more. I don't know enough right now. Uh, for further information, God will get it to us um, eventually. But And, and I mean, I, who knows? We'll know everything for sure. Think of all the knowledge in all the world. Think about the way that gravity works and the new uh, um, uh, the, the new things they're finding through the web telescope and all of those things. Um, so, yeah, um, Paul says, I kind of lean towards we perish once and for all. I think hell may be a time uh, till the end, then perish. Maybe I believe in annihilation. Yeah. Um, let's just. Um, I, I I'm 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 open to p- that possibly being true. I don't know that I lean towards it. I I just don't have enough questions yet, and um, I'm hoping to be able. So I'm I'm diving in. I'm am I'm reading books on hell. I'm studying stuff now. I'm diving in because I don't want to talk out of my hat when it comes to it. I want to have biblical information. I want to know where we got certain ideas. Um, why, Why do we often picture Satan as in control in hell when he's thrown into the lake of fire where he's tormented forever and ever? We, that looks very much like the Greek God of Hades. So anyway, I, I don't want to just talk out of my hat. I, w- I really want to be informed and this is one area that I just feel like people don't dive into. They just kind of get got what they've got and say what they say and, and to, so a lot of people this is a this is a litmus test for whether or not you're a Christian. You know if you believe in in hell being a place of torment forever and ever and if you think that that your grandma's not gonna be tormented forever and ever you're not a real Christian and i will go um you just got to leave me some room here to be able to, to to sort this out for myself maybe you're right um maybe maybe sin is so bad that it deserves torment forever and ever against a, a sin against a holy infinite god is so bad that it, you des- it deserves torment forever and ever maybe maybe we don't understand how bad sin is um there's still few stripes and many stripes. Just a lot of things, right? We've got to, we've got to take a look at this. So, almost done here, but let me bring on one more question. We'll give Rod two questions today. Rod says, did the thief on the cross have a relationship with Christ? If so, the relationship is part of salvation. Depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah, I mean, he had to have a relationship with him to say, will you remember me when you enter into uh, your kingdom? And Jesus to say, today I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise. That's a relationship. Not a very long relationship, but it's a relationship, and he knew him, and he entered into heaven because of it. So yeah, the thief on the cross had a relationship with him. It never says it has to be a relationship for this long, right? But it could be just for a short amount of time. However short amount of time that was, that thief on the cross had a relationship with Christ and entered into paradise because of it, all right? So, uh, looks like we do have a few more questions here. I'm out of time. Gonna be teaching in an hour. We are looking at Ananias and Sapphira Explained. It's a bizarre passage where some people go to give things to God and die when they don't give in the right way. And so, if you don't give to God in the right way, you could drop dead. No, that's not my that's not my, my application. Alright, I see um, Susan, there's a question here. Um, I've heard that God the Father is married uh, to Israel. Jesus' bride is as the church. Any thoughts? Um yeah, Susan, those are analogies. Okay, and, and and maybe I'll get into that next time. Can you re ask that question? Because I don't have time to go into um into all that right now. All right. So yeah, there's there's some more questions here. I'll be looking at this, and um if I see a question here that I want to use for the our next QA next Wednesday, we'll pick that out, alright? So love you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Um delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You say, well, how can I really walk with Christ? Delight in the Lord. Delight in him more tomorrow than you do today. Make it your aim to be a man or a woman that delight in the Lord. Walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Make it your aim to walk in the spirit and you will not have the lust of the flesh uh, that are fulfilled, all right? So, I'm out. I'll see you guys uh, Wednesday, Lord willing. We'll have a Q and A and um, we'll also be in the book of Revelation. Again, uh, we'll be going into chapter 13. We're we're in a great section, all right? We're going to get a lot of questions that we have about the book of Revelation answered, all right? So tonight, Ananias and Sapphira explained. Love you guys. I'm out. We'll see you later on.